So I have a friend who uh, was walking around the theme park one day. He was in his mid-twenties, walking around Six Flags uh, with a friend of his. So just two of them, mid-twenties, walking around Six Flags. And when when, when my friend started to notice, um, as they were walking around, that all these cute girls were looking his direction uh, and smiling at him as they walked by, which was awesome. So my friend uh, kind of looked at himself and looked at his friend. You know, he did a quick once over to make sure, you know, that nothing was on his shirt. Uh, nothing weird was drawing undue attention to them. Uh, you know, no boogers hanging out or anything like that. Um, so that, you know, he could read the situation correctly, seeing all these cute girls walk by, look his direction and, uh, and a smile. So he started to, you know, feel good about himself um, you know, he felt like obviously he had it going on. So he started thinking, all right, I could get used to this. Um, must look especially good today. Who's the man? Started winking at these girls as they walk by and sort of, you know, pointing their direction. Like, how you doing? That kind of thing, you know. You laugh because some of you on the inside say that. You're like, how you doing? Teenage, mid-20 boys. He started getting a little overconfident, though, and in that that moment, he realized uh, that he was reading the situation entirely wrong. They weren't looking at him. They were looking at his friend next to him. Every single one of those cute girls walking by in the theme park weren't looking at him. They were looking at his friend. He was tall, athletic, good-looking dude with white teeth and, you know, nice hair, the kind you can run your hand through, not so much like this. Where I've had it like this since elementary school. They weren't looking at him at all. They were looking at his friend. He was the real stud. And my friend finally understood what was really going on. Turned out the cute girls hadn't been looking at him at all, of course. Funny how, isn't it? Just a little shift in perspective. And the story totally changes. He was seeing this situation as they're walking through Six Flags from his perspective, from one perspective, from his perspective alone. And that perspective was what determined his understanding of the whole, (laughs) which turned out to be the wrong understanding of the whole. As soon as his perspective shifted from it being about him to seeing it from the perspective of his friend, He understood more clearly what was really going on there. Friends, I want to tell you, we will constantly misunderstand things in our lives when we see them only from our narrow perspective. Doesn't matter who you are, doesn't matter what situation is, we will constantly misunderstand things in our lives. If we continue to see them, if we learn to see them from our narrow perspective, forgetting to place them, not learning to locate them in God's larger story. Because you see, God has bigger, greater than plans for our lives than we do, or than sometimes we can even see. And when we insist on viewing our lives from our narrow perspective when we insist on seeing our lives not to that page yet people 
when we insist on seeing our lives from a narrow perspective, we begin to see things from the, the small perspective of the pain of the moment and the suffering of our circumstances in that immediate circumstances. And we begin to see the whole from the moment. We begin to reduce it all down and get stuck at that place of me and my pain. We begin to reduce it all down and filter it through just me when we stay at our narrow perspective. And, And don't get me wrong. There are real hurts and real pains and real sufferings. I'm not here today to tell you that you shouldn't interpret things that are pain and hurts and suffering as suffering because it is. They are bad things. But I am here today to warn us all that when we reduce the whole of our lives down to the narrow me and my pain perspective, we begin to understand our lives in a narrow and selfish way that will keep us from seeing and experiencing God's greater than plan that he is making happen in the world. We can learn to and train ourselves to miss what God actually has for us. Because, friends, if we will learn to sort of step back and see the larger story, uh, a bigger picture, we will also see and experience God's goodness and glory. It's just that simple. Let me say it again. If we will learn to step back and see God's larger story, see what He's doing in the world, we will also see and experience at an individual and personal level God's goodness and greatness and glory in ways we don't yet see. So friends, don't reduce your life down to you and your pain. Expand it to see God and His glory. Don't reduce your life down to you and your pain. Expand it to see God and His glory. We learned that lesson today. Uh, from someone in the scriptures who, who saw and experienced God's larger plan. Today we turn to Joseph in the book of Genesis, and it was at the end of a, a drama-filled life, honestly, that knew its fair share of suffering and injustice. And it became clear to Joseph that he had to learn to view his life from God's larger perspective. And we see that in part because it's a contrast from his brothers, who had continued to tell the story of their lives from a narrow perspective. Jump in at Genesis 50, verse 15. We're going to spend some time there, get some context, and then move on. But verse 15 says this, When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. Now, why are they saying this? Press pause for some context. There's obviously a lot of backstory here before verse 15. You see, Joseph was one of 12 brothers, and these 12 brothers were the sons of Jacob who became known as the 12 tribes of Israel. Joseph was the favored son, so much so uh, that, get ready with the graphic, please, so much so that Jacob gave Joseph a, a coat of many colors, an amazing Technicolor dream coat if you're a Broadway fan. Uh, actually, we have hmm, a crack research team uh, who scoured the annals of history, and we think we know what it looked like. Here you go. Thank you for laughing when you already knew it was coming. Uh, if you don't know who that is, that's Tommy Staggs, our associate minister, um, in his 
amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. It probably looked um, a little bit like that. Um, but we did some further research to, uh, to find that actually it probably looked a little more like this one. There's Chris right there. <laughs> yes. Yes. That's probably exactly as it looked. <clears throat> okay, take that down. Let's get back to the Bible here. Uh, so to make a 13-chapter-long story short, <laughs> uh, Joseph is the favored son, and he let everyone know it at first. He had big dreams about how he was the favored one and how his brothers were all going to, to bow down to him. In fact, in one of these dreams, the sun, the moon, and 11 stars bowed down to Joseph. And you, you know how that went over with the brothers, obviously. 11 brothers saying, oh, so not only am I going to bow down to you, but the entire universe is going to. Joseph is the favored son, but he was hated by his brothers. Hated by his brothers. And so they paid him back with evil. They decided to call him the dreamer, and they hated him. And this wasn't just in theory. After initially deciding to, to throw him in a pit and leave him for dead, they thought, no, let's go ahead and profit off this. Um, so they sold him to Egyptian slave traders. They took his colorful coat, they dipped it in animal's blood, and they went back to their father and said, Look, your favored son, Jacob, the one you love, that they hated, he's dead. So, so by the time we come to Genesis 50, verse 15, the craziest thing happened. God has a greater plan than they did. And instead of Joseph dying, instead of his brother's plans taking shape in Joseph's life, he actually prospered. And he prospered big time. He goes from slavery to being thrown in prison unjustly to being second in command in all of the kingdom of Egypt under the Pharaoh. And Egypt is the world power at the time. So this means that Joseph has as much power as anybody on the planet except for Pharaoh himself. He had become second in command and was now one of the most powerful men in the world. So with that context, read what happens in 15 and following again. It says, When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us for all that stuff they'd done and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. Now, now we know from earlier in this chapter that Joseph's brothers already knew that Jacob was dead because they traveled with Joseph to bury him. So verse 15, it isn't like they somehow suddenly find out for the first time uh, that their father is dead. Verse 15 is a statement of them realizing, oh no, dad's gone and we committed this great evil against our own brother. And he is now second in command in the whole world. He is able with a word to end our lives, which was true. So in, in a real sense, their fear was valid. But here's the thing. Joseph had already forgiven them before we get to this point. Joseph had already forgiven his brothers for throwing him in the pit, selling him to slave traders, for all of the, the unjust imprisonment that he experienced as a result of that. This had been 40 years prior, thing after thing after negative, painful, suffering, hurtful, ugly thing happened to Joseph on the one hand 
for 40 years, and yet God prospered him. And so they come and he forgives them. But they don't believe it. Joseph had already forgiven him, but they didn't trust his forgiveness, which means they were living in fear of what they'd been what they had done four years earlier. And so they lie. They make up a story here and they plead with Joseph by claiming that they're speaking with the authority of their now dead father. Look at 16 and 17. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. So they're not only hearkening to to Jacob and his authority, but to the authority of God and saying, these servants of God, your father, that is us. Friends, guilt over sin can hold power over many people for many years. And and so Joseph's brothers were carrying this around for year after year after year. And, And they came from a family with a history of favoritism, which was a trajectory set by Jacob, their father. And so they, they had learned, they had learned, as many of us do, that you can't trust forgiveness. And so they don't trust Joseph's forgiveness that he had offered earlier. But they didn't know about the change that had taken place in Joseph. See, they, they were continuing to think about it from their narrow perspective without the awareness of God's greater than plan. The change that had taken place in Joseph's life meant that he saw life differently than they. Notice Joseph's response at the end of verse 17 there. It says, Joseph wept when they spoke to him. I think he wept out of compassion because they didn't believe, because they continued to carry the guilt. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him. It's an act of humility and said, behold, we are your servants. Tell us what to do. Just don't kill us. But Joseph said to them, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? Joseph is crying with compassion here as they're speaking to him because of this guilt that they've been carrying around for for almost 40 years. Joseph was 17 when this happened, when they threw him in the pit. And now he's probably about 56 years old. And the change that had taken place in Joseph meant that he saw life differently than his brothers. He knew that God was doing something bigger than his personal pains and sufferings. Joseph knew God was doing something bigger and more important than his personal pains and sufferings. We said earlier uh, that it's really easy for us, and, and we all do this in various ways. Like, I'm a pro at this. <laughs> it's real easy to reduce the filters of our lives down to me and my pain. Now, if that were Joseph's take in this scenario here, he would have taken him out right then and there. Because, because I'm thinking he's not forgotten that moment when his brothers threw him in the pit and left him for dead. I'm thinking he had a lot of time sitting in that prison cell for a crime he didn't commit. I'm thinking he had a lot of time to think about life from either a narrow perspective, a self-centered perspective that was reduced down to nothing but me and my pain, or to see it in God's larger plan. Because I think if I'm Joseph at this point and my brothers come to me groveling, I'm telling them, hey, remember that time you threw me in the pit? 
It's payback, friends. Isn't that what's in a lot of our hearts? I know it's in mine. The amazing thing is that Joseph doesn't do that because he's learned to interpret things in his life. Everything from the blessing to the pain through the filter of God's greater than plan and not his own plan. You see, friends, Joseph's response was not in keeping with his pain. It was in keeping with God's plan. And that's the difference between a life of bitterness and a life of joy. Joseph's response was not in keeping with his pain. It was in keeping with God's plan. It was what was for him a personal perspective that saw God's goodness and God's glory and God's purposes as the greater goal for his own life. Look at verses 20 and following here. As for you, him speaking to his brothers, you met evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Verse 20, friends, needs to be a personal slogan for for each one of us. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Today, And I don't just mean that first part about you meant it for evil, God meant it for good. I mean the whole thing. To bring it about for the purpose that many people should be kept alive as they are today. If verse 20 is not sort of a slogan for our lives to give us meaning, we will learn to interpret life's circumstances from a narrow and selfish personal perspective that, that just sits and marinates and sulks in our personal pain and suffering as if there is nothing larger going on. Friends, God's greater than plan is what gives your life's frustrations meaning beyond you. You see, God is big enough that he can even use all of that for his purposes. God can even use your personal pains and suffering and frustrations to teach, to make himself known to you, to make himself known through you. Here's the crazy thing about verse 20 and what Joseph thinks and what we need to think about our lives. God wants to use you to keep others around you alive. I know as I say that, it sounds a little highfalutin. <laughs> but I mean every word of that. Let me say this again. God wants to use you to keep others around you alive. Because, friends, we are surrounded in this world and in our lives by countless walking dead who have no earthly clue that they aren't really alive. God wants to use you like Joseph so that you, so that I, so that we can say with him in verse 21, Do not fear. 
I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus, he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. In the middle of a circumstance where their evil was in his face and he had to deal with it again, he shepherds them for God's redemptive purposes. See, Joseph saw his life as about something far greater than himself. Though you meant evil against me, God meant it for good. Which is to say, friends, this life is not about your plan for you. This life is about God's plans for himself. If you don't understand that distinction, you don't know why you exist. Your life is not about your plans for you. Throw those on the trash heap and let them burn. Because your plans for you are going to continue to result in bitterness and frustration, narrow perspective that reduces your life's experiences and filters down to you and your pain. (laughs) Which is super easy to do. Most of us are really good at reducing it down to that. But friends, like Joseph, like the scriptures tell us, like thousands of years of those who have gone before, who, who followed Jesus well, are witness. This life is about God's plans for himself. And only when you begin to participate in that larger story, locate your story in God's larger purposes and plan, will you only when you do that will you begin to understand peace and joy and contentment beyond the moment, beyond the circumstances. Because, friends, this isn't about your plans, your parents' plans, your friends' plans at school, the fashion magazine, Snapchat, or the Internet. This life is about God's plans for himself. And personal meaning and contentment, your personal meaning and contentment, are only found in God's greater than plans for his own glory. Because he alone deserves this. He alone is perfect beyond our understanding. He alone is holy in a way that should be worshipped. Which means we must find our existence in His greater than plans. Let me close by asking you one question. How do you learn to locate yourself in God's larger story? How are you learning? How are you learning to locate yourself in God's greater than story? I'm going to suggest that it's relatively simple. Um, and, and as soon as I say this, it's not going to sound simple. But there are nine ways. Um, that if you will give yourself to these nine ways, start to practice nine ways until they become, I don't know, habits. I guarantee you that you would become adept. You would become good. You will be able to locate yourself in God's larger story in ways that mean you will interpret your immediate circumstances with the whole instead of reducing your filters down to you and your pain. Locating your life in God's greater story is about learning to make things like these nine habits 
a part of your life from day to day, from week to week, from month to month, from year to year, in a way that becomes a lifetime of seeing yourself just like Joseph did. It's much simpler than we think. These becoming habits in our lives to learn to engage and worship meaningfully. To serve on a team in a way that, that shows you who God made you to be and what your unique gifts are and, and, and how you work with the whole and what this does for the kingdom. To be able to connect uh, with a group of fellow believers that are a support and an encouragement who will pray with you, who will study the word with you from week to week. Friends, just those, those first three can be a real key piece of you learning to locate your life in God's greater than plan. If, if you were a person, if we were a place that was marked by these nine habits, not just as pretty slogans on a website or in a sermon, but as, as things that actually formed us as people, we'll be able to go through things like Joseph and say, I give God praise and glory because though someone else meant it for evil, God can use it. God can use me and my circumstances as a part of his larger plan to bring himself glory. That's how you will find meaning and peace and contentment and satisfaction in 2017, friends, in ways that participate in God's larger plan to save people from their sins, to become someone who helps people find and follow Jesus. Let's pray, friends.